Hey everyone, Lainey here, and as you know, I am currently out on my maternity leave bonding with my little girl and really just kind of trying to enjoy motherhood since it's such a new thing for me. And I really, really appreciate all of the check-ins and well wishes on the birth of our daughter. So I am seeing you, I hear you, and I really, really appreciate it. And I'm still on Twitter and social media in general, so feel free to check in, say hi. So this episode is going to be hosted by my good friend Hannah, and she hosts one of my other favorite shows that is not true crime, which is so rare for me, but it's called The Boozy Movie Show, and it's such a fun podcast to listen to, and honestly, I love Hannah so much, and I think that it's one of the shows that you should definitely be checking out. So you can be sure to find the Boozy Movie Podcast on any podcast that you listen to. But you can find them on Twitter and TikTok. They have some pretty funny content on there. If you go to at Boozy Movies Show and their Facebook group called the Boozy Movies Drinking Buddies. And now that my little girl is born, I cannot wait to have another glass of wine. So here it is. Enjoy the show. Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the True Crime Fan Club podcast. I'm your host, Hannah, of the Boozy Movies podcast, filling in for Lainey, who is on maternity leave. In the days before DNA was used in criminal investigations, some cases were solved by a perfect storm of events. Today, we discuss a serial killer who was caught and arrested by walking with two purses taken off his latest victim. Okay, on to the show. On March 23, 1985, a construction worker in the Fort Worth, Arlington area of Texas was working at a housing development when he spotted a hand, quote, sticking up inside the drain. The body was identified as that of Sharon Killsback, an 18-year-old woman from Porcupine, South Dakota. Sharon had not been in the area long, arriving in February, after completing Job Corps training in Utah. She found work as a car painter in Fort Worth. On March 15th, Sharon asked her roommate to walk her to a friend's house. Her roommate went, but about a block away changed her mind. She turned to go back home, but then changed her mind within just a few minutes. She said when she turned, Sharon was gone. When she was found, she was caked in mud, and a rope was tied around her neck. It had been wrapped around her neck twice, and knotted. Police believed she had been kept alive for several days after she went missing, and was killed on the 20th, then dumped in the drain. She was found fully clothed, but had been raped. Sharon was a member of the Oglala Sioux Tribe in South Dakota. On March 14, 1985, her family in South Dakota received a letter from Sharon, stating she would be home for a visit in two weeks. A week later, her family received notification that she was dead. Her sister said Sharon came home, just not the way they wanted her to. Sharon was one of nine siblings and the youngest girl. Sharon had aspirations, wanting to leave the Pine Ridge Reservation they called home. When she was 16, Sharon joined a Job Corps program in Utah, which she attended for two years, receiving vocational training geared towards minorities. When she graduated the program, she was given three locations to choose from, Arlington, Texas, Atlanta, Georgia, in Stockton, California. One of her sisters urged her to take the position in California, but Sharon elected for Texas. 
Her mother worried about her and warned her frequently to stay safe and not walk any place alone. Sharon assured her mother that she was safe and had friends who gave her rides. Unfortunately, that was not always the case. Sharon's mother passed away at age 45, less than three years after Sharon's murder. Sharon's sisters said the murder took its toll on their mother. Sharon's father died three years before they received answers in her case. At the time Sharon was found, she was one of eight women in the Fort Worth, Arlington area who had been murdered. The most recent had occurred the month before in Arlington, when a 22-year-old woman was raped and murdered. The other six were from Fort Worth. On May 30, 1985, a body was found floating in the Trinity River. It was that of Therese Gregory, a 29-year-old who had been last seen a day earlier leaving a downtown Fort Worth bar. Therese had been shot in the face and raped. Almost exactly a year later, on May 28, 1986, police working a special detail saw a man walking along Brentwood Stair Road carrying two purses. They arrested him and found identification in the purses belonging to Jewel Woods. When the police went to her apartment in the Woodstone Apartments on Bridge Street, they found her front door unlocked. Neighbors informed police they had seen Jewel walking her Irish setter around 7 p.m. that night, while another neighbor said she'd heard a disturbance in Jewel's apartment around 11 p.m. Police searched through the night for Jewel, with additional officers, including officers on horseback, joining in at daylight. Jewel was found after 11 a.m. on May 29, 1986. She was found, nude, in a small patch of brush about a block from her apartment complex. A later autopsy revealed Jewel had been sexually assaulted and beaten to death with a rock. The man arrested on the night Jewel went missing was 20-year-old Curtis Don Brown from Fort Worth. He was on parole out of California for a robbery and was on bond, awaiting trial for an attempted break-in stemming from an incident on February 24, 1986. On that occasion, a woman was watching television in her apartment when she heard what sounded like someone scratching a window or trying to open a window. She looked out the patio door and saw a man crouching next to her bedroom window. She phoned the police who arrived on the scene to take her statement and the description she provided. While she was describing the man, a private security guard employed by the complex was chasing the suspect towards the officers. The officers joined the chase and soon caught the man. The security guard had a separate incident reported to him that Curtis Brown was making sexual advances toward another female resident in the laundry room. He was booked on attempted burglary charges which the district attorney later reduced to criminal trespassing. He was released on a $500 bond in that incident. Curtis was charged with capital murder since Jewel had been kidnapped, raped, and murdered. A capital murder charge carried the heft of a death penalty if convicted. However, in December 1986, Curtis Don Brown took a plea deal with a Tarrant County prosecuting attorney. Prosecutors dropped the rape charge, thereby making Curtis ineligible for the death penalty. The judge sentenced him to two life sentences to run concurrently. The prosecutor on the case said the plea bargain was not an easy choice, but she took it after discussing the matter in great detail with Jewel Woods' family. She went on to say that a capital murder trial would have been lengthy and expensive and still might have resulted in a life sentence. Under the plea bargain, Curtis was not eligible for appeal. 
Although the prosecutor consulted with the family, Jewel's son Greg was furious about the plea deal. He said he finally, quote, went along with the plea bargain, but didn't tell the entire family because some of the older members would have been even more upset. Rightfully so, as under Texas law, a life sentence has a maximum limit of 60 years, with parole eligibility after receiving credit for 20 years. Therefore, with time off for good behavior, Brown could have been eligible for parole after seven years. Greg admitted to reporters he was obnoxious and verbally abusive to prosecutors, but said it was his mother. He was upset prosecutors had taken into consideration the high cost of a capital murder trial, saying, I personally think my mother is worth any amount of money it takes to get her justice. Curtis Don Brown was not released after serving seven years, thankfully. Nineteen years later, after he had taken the plea agreement in February 2005, investigators reviewed evidence from Therese Gregory's body and found semen samples still in the freezer. A DNA profile was created from the sample and entered into the Combined DNA Index System, or CODIS. CODIS was implemented in 1998 and has become a valuable investigative tool. The test results confirmed it was Curtis's DNA on Teresa's body. Once investigators knew this, they looked at 25 other open cases from around the same time. 18 cold cases were identified as needing a better look. Investigators soon matched Curtis's DNA to evidence found on Sharon Killsback's body. In 2008, Curtis was indicted on two additional counts of homicide. He took another plea deal, receiving two additional life sentences. Jim Gregory, Teresa's brother, was outraged at the plea bargain. He had stressed to the prosecutor that he wanted the death penalty sought for his sister's killer. The plea came about less than a week before his trial was set to begin. The prosecutor defended the agreement by stating Curtis was eligible for parole for Jewel Woods' murder, so the plea agreement would ensure he would stay in prison for the rest of his life. Sharon's family felt differently, and were relieved they would not have to attend the trial. The chief of the criminal division of Tarrant County District Attorney's Office said, Brown's criminal past and the randomness of which he selected his victims certainly puts him in a category of murderers likely to have multiple homicide victims. Of the 18 cases authorities said deserved a closer look, Seven are still listed in the cold case files on the Fort Worth cold case website. The murders of young women in the Fort Worth Arlington area began in 1983 with the murder of Mary Elizabeth Till, a resident of Arlington. Mary was a 27 year old legal secretary who worked for a Dallas attorney, Tom Thompson. On Thursday, August 18, 1983, Mary talked to a friend earlier that morning and told the friend she would be late for work. She then called her boss around 8.45 a.m. and told him she would be a little late. Her car was located late Friday, but it was impounded and not connected with the missing persons report until the auto theft division returned on Monday. Her 1981 Mazda RX-7 was burned and found in a parking lot not far from where she worked. The police had very little to go on for several months until two hunters stumbled across a decomposed body on Tuesday, January 3, 1984. The hunters did not call the police until around 8 a.m. on Wednesday, January 4. 
They went to work on the 4th and were advised by their boss to report it. Her body was found on the south side of Simpson Sturette Road, about a mile from where her car had been located on August 20th, 1983. When she was reported missing and her car was located, the north side of the road had been diligently searched by officers on horses and volunteers on foot. A medical investigator for the Dallas County Medical Examiner's Office said, Where she was found, it would have not been easy for her to go unnoticed for that long if that was where she was killed. She was identified by dental records. An autopsy showed that she had died from a single gunshot wound to the head, although no ballistics information was provided to journalists. Her mother had never given up hope that Mary would be found alive, but said knowing Mary's fate provided some relief to the worry. She told reporters, I wanted God to show us, someone to show us, where Mary was. At least we know what happened to her. Mary had a brother and sister, and nieces and nephews. The next missing woman was Sandra Bush, who was last seen on November 17, 1983. Sandra, 21 years old, was a receptionist with a new car and a new job. Sandra was on the phone with a friend around 7 o'clock that evening and told her family she had to leave for a few minutes but would be back shortly. However, she failed to return that evening, so her family reported her missing on Friday, November 18th. On Saturday, November 19th, her 1979 bronze Chevy Monte Carlo was found parked outside a bar on Refugio Street. A bloodstained pillow was found in the trunk, and it appeared the car had been wiped down to eliminate fingerprints. Sandra had left a message on the answering machine that said, Hi, this is Sandra. Leave your name and number, and I'll be right back. Her mother said Sandra did not go out very often, but she went to a bar several miles from where her car was found. Sandra had broken up with a boyfriend a few months prior, but the two were on friendly terms. A partially decomposed body was found in a field off Old Decatur Road on January 2, 1984. In a situation similar to that of Mary Till, two hunters were in a vacant field north of Loop 820. They saw a partially clad body covered with wood. The clothing matched the pink tracksuit Sandra had been wearing on November 17th, although positive identification was impossible due to the lack of dental records. An autopsy revealed the victim had been strangled with some type of cord. Medical examiners had to use a complicated process, which consisted of television cameras being used to superimpose photographs of Sandra over photographs of the remains. This process did lead to a positive identification of Sandra. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Check out betterhelp.com TCFC. Now, as you know, I am a new mom, so my life is kind of crazy right now. And sure, everybody's life is full of stressors, and it doesn't matter who you are or what you have. Your life is probably stressful. But I'm learning to navigate how to deal with any type of postpartum blues that I may be having, and BetterHelp has honestly really helped me. Now, you may not be feeling down and out and depressed or like you're at a total loss, but if your stress is high, your temper is shorter than usual, or even if you're starting to feel strain in any of your relationships, you could probably use the chance to unload. So unload the stress and get it out. Talk to someone who's completely unbiased about your life. 
someone who isn't going to judge you or take sides on anything. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Unload the stressors and get some unbiased feedback. You'd be pretty surprised at what you might gain from it. See if it's for you. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and True Crime Fan Club podcast listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com TCFC. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash TCFC. While TV has been a saving grace for many of us, I'm sure by now a lot of you feel like you're caught up on every single show imaginable. If you're tired of scrolling through the same movies or shows and miss the excitement of weekly releases and brand new binge fests, then you have to get Acorn TV. Acorn TV is the largest commercial-free British streaming service that features compelling stories, exclusive premieres, and originals you won't find anywhere else. Now, one of my favorite shows that I recently started watching is called My Life is Murder, and it stars Lucy Lawless. You may remember her from Xena Warrior Princess or from Parks and Rec. Now, this contemporary Australian detective drama is about Alexa Crow, who is a retired cop. Now, her and her old boss, Bernard Curry from Once Upon a Time, work together and she offers her insight on cold cases, while a young police data analyst played by Ebony Vagulons is eager to be mentored. Now, whether Alexa wants to or not, Alexa can't seem to stop solving crime. Doesn't seem like a bad problem to have. Now, the best part. You get thousands of hours of new enthralling content on Acorn TV for a fraction of the cost compared to most streaming services at just $5.99 a month. If you're ready for a streaming service that offers new stories, new characters, and breathtaking sceneries every week, do what I did and get Acorn TV. Try Acorn TV free for 30 days by going to acorn.tv and use my promo code TCFC. But you have to enter the code in all lowercase letters. That's A-C-O-R-N dot TV, code TCFC, to get your first 30 days for free. Sandra was always interested in acting, and had starred in her high school play during her senior year. When she graduated from OD High School, she enrolled in Tarrant County Junior College, then transferred after a semester to North Texas State University in the journalism program. After she finished her first year of school, she did not return. Instead, she began working for Dr. Clinton Battle's office in Fort Worth. Dr. Battle said Sandra was the best employee he had ever had and she was ambitious, trying to earn enough to finance college. Catherine Davis is still listed in the cold case files. She was last heard from in the early morning hours of September 29, 1984. Catherine lived in a small garage apartment in Park Ridge Road. Neighbors reported to police they had heard loud music and voices, slamming doors, and then a car leaving, then did not see Catherine any longer. Lights and a radio were left on, which was not characteristic of Catherine. When she did not show up at work or call, her coworkers became worried and discovered the apartment had burned. Fire investigators believed a lit cigarette had been left on the bed, causing the blaze. 
Neighbors said the blaze began around 45 minutes after they had heard the sounds coming from her apartment. Catherine's family lived in Oxford, Mississippi, but she had moved to the Dallas-Fort Worth area in June 1979 to try to break into modeling. Her father said the career never got off the ground, and she had held a number of jobs while in Texas. Friends said she wasn't dating anyone seriously, and that she did not drink or do drugs. Her boss at the country club where she worked said she got along with all of her coworkers. Her father, Marvin Davis, came to Texas to look for his daughter, and to post missing person posters in the area. He said he visited the club where Catherine would go to dance with friends, and found out she had not been there for a week. He talked to her neighbors and learned that one had seen a man leaving her apartment on the morning of September 29th. The man was wearing gloves when he closed her apartment door, then got into Catherine's car. This was odd, since it was not cold enough to wear gloves that day. The neighbor said he did not hear Catherine cry for help, just heard voices talking. On October 7, 1984, Catherine's 1974 Dodge Dart Swinger was found near Texas Christian University. The blue car had been parked there, less than a mile from her apartment, since September 30, 1984. An investigator said there were traces of mud, grass, and flowers on the car, which indicated it may have been driven through a field before being parked there. Helicopters were used to search the local area, but nothing was found. Investigators also said that although Catherine had once gone missing for a month in high school, going to Florida with a boyfriend, this case was not consistent with her leaving voluntarily. She only rarely smoked, and also had a cat she wouldn't have left alone. The cat perished in the apartment fire. Several of Catherine's friends took polygraph tests, which they all passed. On Saturday, January 5, 1985, Bones were found in a small creek about 200 feet south of Bel Air Drive North on the Texas Christian University campus. The badly decomposed body was missing the skull, right arm, and ribs. There were a total of 79 bones missing from the body. The creek was less than half a mile from where Catherine Davis lived. Law enforcement decided to have the lake the creek fed into drained. This lake, Worth Hills Lake, was about 10 to 12 feet deep. On January 8th, around 4.30 a.m., the officer left guarding the site found a portion of a skull upstream from where the creek and the lake meet. He continued searching and found an arm bone about 15 minutes later. The arm bone was about 20 feet from where he found the portion of the skull. Both discoveries were about a quarter mile from where the original discovery was made. Medical examiners could tell the victim had been strangled, but they were concerned that without a skull, they wouldn't be able to make an identification. Luckily, the recovered portion of the skull contained two teeth, one with a filling and one that had been capped. The body had been decomposing for about six weeks, and investigators determined the bones had not been severed by the killer. On January 9, 1985, positive identification of the remains were made. The body was not Catherine Davis, but Cindy Heller, another young woman who went missing just a few weeks after Catherine's disappearance. Another woman, Angela Ewart, had gone missing approximately a month before the discovery of the remains. On January 23, 1985, more skeletal remains were found in a field in South Fort Worth. The remains were on both sides of a creek that ran through the field in heavy brush. 
The remains were found by surveyors about 50 yards west of the Santa Fe Railway tracks. 45 bags of small bones and remains were collected by law enforcement, and the area was guarded overnight, when it became too dark to continue searching. This body was identified positively as Catherine Davis on January 24, 1985. Catherine's mother, Sandra, said, We're doing all right. We're trusting the Lord. But we need a little time to ourselves. Cindy Heller had vanished on the night of Monday, October 22, 1984. She had left a dance class and stopped to assist a stranded woman, taking her to a local restaurant. The woman asked Cindy to deliver a message to an apartment complex where two friends lived. The note was found pinned to the front door of the apartment, but no one saw Cindy again. Her car was found in the parking lot of the Hunter Ridge Apartments the next night. The car was damaged by a small fire that investigators originally thought was spontaneous combustion of papers. A few days after the discovery of the car, a $5,000 reward was offered for information leading to her discovery. Cindy was described by friends as beautiful, vivacious, and hopelessly friendly. Her friends worried about her because she never met a stranger. Kazumi Gillespie, the woman Cindy rescued the night she disappeared, said she and Cindy quickly became friends, and the pair spent a few hours drinking at Bennigan's as Kazumi tried to reach friends. She told authorities she first met Cindy at 9.30 p.m. when Cindy stopped to assist her. Cindy left Kazumi at 11.20 p.m. Cindy was originally from Glencoe, Illinois, and had come to Texas in 1979 to attend Texas Christian University, where she studied fashion and home economics. She returned home each summer, where her father, a Russian Jew who immigrated to America during World War II, owned a Mercedes dealership. Cindy had three siblings and was the youngest. Cindy participated in the Miss Fort Worth beauty pageant in 1981 and 1982. She did not do well the first year, but the next year she came in first in the swimsuit competition and was rated high on personality. She had a longtime boyfriend, who was the one who found her car. Law enforcement quickly suspected foul play in her disappearance, stating, We have no reason to suspect foul play except this gal was level-headed, had more than one job, and always reported in on time. The other woman who went missing in that same time frame, Angela Ewart, vanished December 11, 1984. She had left her boyfriend's house around 11 p.m., then went to a local convenience store and got gas. At 7 a.m. on the 11th, her father and fiancé reported her missing to police. Later that same morning, her car, a 1984 Mercury Topaz, was found on Southeast Loop 320. It appeared a flat had been changed on the car. While searching the area around the vehicle, a broken pocket knife was found. Two other homicides from late fall 1984 are still on the cold case website. These two ladies were both teachers and were found murdered in their home. Marilyn Hartman, 29, a teacher of Stripling Middle School, was found bound and strangled on her bedroom floor on October 19, 1984. Police believe she had interrupted a burglary and was killed. Her car was stolen and several pieces of jewelry she was wearing earlier in the day were missing. Marilyn had lived in Fort Worth for three years, moving there after completing a graduate degree from Arkansas State University. She was married and a member of the Gospel Kingdom Church of God in Christ in Fort Worth. The other teacher found murdered in her home was Katherine Jackson. 
She was found the morning of Monday, November 26, 1984. Her students at Irma Marsh Middle School had reported to the principal that she wasn't there, and one of them went to her home. He and an employee of the apartment complex opened the door and found Catherine in the tub with clothes piled on top of her. Catherine's hands and feet were bound with a cord, which was also looped around her neck. She was face down in the tub and had suffered minor burns from the hot water. She had gone out of town for Thanksgiving and neighbors had heard her return around 7 o'clock the night before. Catherine's students liked and respected her. She was described as short in stature but long in discipline. Catherine was somewhat shy and did not socialize a lot with her coworkers. She was an active church member and had been a teacher for 12 years. She had previously taught at La Plata Junior High School in Hereford. She was active in the single Sunday school class at the Broadway Baptist Church and typically went home to Brady on weekends, particularly in the weeks leading to her death due to her father being ill. A special task force had been created to work on the unsolved homicides. The task force was created on January 9th when the body of another victim had been found. This victim, Lisa Griffin, was found near Benbrook in southwest Tarrant County. However, a suspect was located and charged with her death. After two years, the task force was disbanded, and many of the cases remained unsolved. This would be true for several years until the advent of DNA profiling. In June 1985, the FBI lent their assistance to the multiple homicide cases. They provided a profile of the killer, saying the killer was known by some of the victims and was full of rage. However, in the end, these profiles were of little assistance to the task force. Many of these murders have similar characteristics, although no link between the victims was ever found. At least three of them involved a fire, two of them were teachers strangled at home, and three occurred late at night, when the women were in their vehicles alone. Oddly, the killings began in August 1983 and ended in 1986, around the time of Jewel Woods' murder. It was nine years before Angela Ewart's family found any closure on her whereabouts. Her body was found around August 8, 1993. However, finding her remains did not lead to any additional tips or clues. She had been found in a trash-strewn area in southern Tarrant County. Okay, fan club members, as I conclude this episode, my one question to you is, how will you sleep tonight? Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a positive review and rating on Apple Podcasts or your podcast player of choice. It really does help. You can find us on most social media channels, Twitter at TCFCPod, Facebook.com slash TCFCPodcast, Instagram at True Crime Fan Club Pod, and of course, our website is TrueCrimeFanClub.com. If you have an episode suggestion, send us an email at tcfcpod at gmail.com. This episode was written and researched by Susie St. John. Content editing by Brittany Martinez.